Heavenly Father, thank you again and again for your abounding grace um, over us and to us and through us. That we are um, your true bride, a redeemed people, a forgiven people, um, a greatly blessed people. We thank you for this day. Um, We pray that um, our thoughts, our attention, would be upon you, upon your word. Lord, in, uh, in, in the implications of uh, this, the Tenth Commandment, and that which they have for our lives as a, as a Christian people. Lord, we ask for your guidance for this day, this morning, this time of worship and study. For your glory and the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, looking at the Ten Commandments, we've already seen, beloved, over the last ten weeks, That there's an upward focus and there's an outward focus. In, in the first table of the law, the first four commandments, that's the first table, the second table is the sixth through tenth commandment, there's an upward focus to Almighty God and our relation, a focus to our relation with regard to our Creator. It's obvious when you look at the first Four that they have to do with our our duty towards God. Um, so it's we could call it a Godward focus, an upward focus. When we look at the second table of the law, we see where how rather we're called to love our neighbor, beginning with honoring our mother and father. The first neighborly um, relationships that we have on this earth. And there's a concern there for our actions to be truly loving um, to one another. And Israel, may we not forget, was being instructed in in covenant um, relational loyalty to both their covenant Lord and to the covenant community, okay? The people of God. So it's a vertical and horizontal um, picture, if you will, relationships vertically and horizontally. But when we think of the Ten Commandments, we often um, think of them with regard to personal morality, and of course that is appropriate, as we ought. But as we have seen, the commandments are even broader than our own personal relationships, that between God and one another. Um, The laws that are laid out by God also, as we have seen, preserve the, the welfare of the whole community. Right. In other words, there's consequence not just for us personally, but for the whole covenant community, um, specifically under the old covenant here as we see uh, with Israel and we see the principle um, throughout the new covenant and the church of Jesus Christ. So in other words, violation of the fifth to the tenth commandment affects the whole community. There's no such thing as private sin uh, with the people of God that, that doesn't somehow, some way affect Um, the whole community of our Lord. One individual act 
impacts the whole covenant community um, in, in these ways that are worshipful, be they upward um, or outward. And today, here in the last section of the table, we witness something a little different. We witness this outward focus, upward focus, and today, in this commandment, what is it, beloved? Inward focus. It's an inward focus. Showing us that God's not merely concerned with outward relations, not merely concerned with our outward um, piety, if you will, but he, 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 he's concerned with the welfare of the whole covenant community, outwardly, upwardly, and inwardly. In other words, God's concerned with the heart of his people. Matters of the heart. And that's exactly what we learn with the 10th tenth, the tenth commandment. The commandments not only about loving God and loving neighbor outwardly, practically, uh, but it's also, again, um, the place in which God sees. Man looks at the outward, God looks at the inward. So none of the commandments, as we have seen, are to be kept merely outwardly, but from the heart. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the law. He said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he says that six times. He says, here's what the law meant. This is what you've made it to mean. Here's the intent of the law. It's a matter of the heart. It's an inward focus. Now, here we come to covetousness. Covetousness. And you've never seen me covet. I've never seen you covet. You've never seen anybody covet. Amen? We only see the consequence (laughs) of covetousness. We've witnessed the green-eyed monster raise its ugly head. Amen? Green eyes of envy. There's no worse place to see the green-eyed monster raise his head than within ministry circles. I've seen pastors have green eyes of envy. So envious that they will go on the attack of another fellow minister to attack his reputation, to taint his reputation, all because of envy, planting bombs of rumor or or whatever. But coveting is birthed from the heart. So again, we can only see the effects of that. Uh, We can see evidence, consequence. But again, this is an action in the heart. This is in the secret place. This is where God sees. Man can't see here. So uh, this, this is a commandment that teaches us not simply to be focused on our outward actions, but the intentions of our heart. Now, the Old Testament command, again, notice this. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Seven things which is a Hebrew number of totality. Right? We see symbols in the Bible. Book of Revelation, seven is symbolic. For completeness. So the entirety, he says, of that which belongs to your neighbor, whether it's coveting possessions or coveting people, the totality of anything that belongs to your neighbor is prohibited for God's people, his covenant people, to covet And there's four groups, not to cover your neighbor's spouse, servants, animals, or anything. Total prohibition on coveting anything that belongs to our neighbor. Now again, beloved, such sins affect more than the individual. 
If you want, you can turn to Joshua and see what I'm talking about here. Joshua 7. We know the story of Achan. And in Joshua 7, okay, someone has sinned within the covenant people of God. Someone has sinned within the camp. And notice what the scripture says. It says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Notice, who's, who's being charged here? All of Israel. Who sinned? Achan. A man. Verse 18. And he brought near his household by, by, by man by man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, give praise to him, tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted. I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And you know what happened to him, beloved? He was stoned to death along with his family. As the father goes, so goes the household. (laughs) All Israel suffered the consequence of this man's covetousness. And to this very day, beloved, one Christian individual's behavior does impact the whole Christian community. We just think, uh, you think of any sin, I mean, gossip especially, sows seeds of discord. A little leaven leavens the, the whole lump. It's that type of thing. It just perpetuates itself. So the commands are upward, they're outward, and they're also inward here. And when the Lord says you shall not cover your neighbor's house, this is interesting. When he says you shall not cover your neighbor's house, he doesn't merely mean, you know, don't covet the big, huge house on the corner with the big, old, beautiful, pristine lot. That's how we think of it. What he means by this is do not covet your neighbor's household. Your neighbor's household, not just the big house. You know, I grew up, uh, you know, the uh, Republican vice president nominee, Paul Ryan. Um, I grew up with his family, and I went to high school with his brother, Toby. And they lived six blocks from us. Lived big, nice house. Her dad was a lawyer. Well, Paul Ryan still lives in the same town. Six, five blocks from my parents now, and he bought a house in the same neighborhood. And it's a house I loved as a kid. Huge brick, two-story, five, six bedrooms, four bathrooms, double garage, finished basement, big yard, beautiful, beautiful home. And I coveted that home. And now he lives in it. You know, a guy that, his brother, I think he's five years younger than we were. But, now, that is a kind of covening we're all familiar with. Covening our neighbor's house. And, of course, that's included within the commandment here. But it's much broader than just that. 
When he says you shall not cover your neighbor's house, again, not just the physical, tangible thing, but he's talking about the household. Anything that is your neighbor's. Everything that's his. It's easy to do, amen? Especially in this consumer-driven culture. We're trained not to be satisfied with anything that we have. That's what all advertising is geared towards. You deserve more. You deserve better. You can't be happy with what you have. They sow into into us discontentment and then our discontentment it's like it's advertising is like kindle to the fire kindling fuel to the fire so to covet is to have an inappropriate desire for something that belongs to someone else or to have an ungodly desire for anything that would take the place the primacy or the priority of who god himself God himself. And to covet is idolatry. This is one of the reasons Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. <laughs> right? And we know, we know this is true because Paul said so in Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Okay, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Praise God for his grace in Christ. Or you would die an idolater. <laughs> Separated from him forever. So coveting refuses, it denies, and, and at the least contradicts the belief in God's providence, if you think about it. Amen? Refuses, denies, or in the least contradicts a belief in the providential care of God for you, for me. So when we covet something he's not given us in, you know, in an extravagant way, then we deny his goodness and his provision for us. We really think about this. Been guilty of it numerous times. And then it begins to outshine our loyalty to him. And then covetousness becomes idolatry. It outshines the glory due his name. Now coveting, as it's been said, is to hanker for something. You ever heard of that? We used to use the word hanker. I'm hankering for this or I'm hankering for that. Hankering back in high school, hankering for a smoke. (laughs) If you smoke. If you knew anything about nicotine and you ever smoke, you know you hanker for a cigarette, right? Hopefully I know none of y'all smoke in your life. Hankering for something, it's yearning for something, it's craving for something, it's aching for something. That's what it is to hanker. So the primary symptom of coveting, again, is discontentment. Discontentment. And when desire for things take out of proportion, it's an importance that's way out of, blown way out of proportion, people then become dissatisfied, once again. Never satisfied. Luther said this, quote, 
This last commandment is addressed not to those whom the Lord considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who want to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the previous commandments, at least in their mind. They say, I've always been monotheistic, serving no other gods. I've never made a graven image to any other god. The Lord's name, won't take it in vain. The Lord's day, I remember the Lord's day. Obeying my parents, um, the no adultery, yeah. No stealing, yeah. False witness, yeah. But coveting, everybody's indicted. Everybody's indicted by the whole law. You break one, you broke them all. We're all violators of the law. But Luther's point here is this. This, this is an indictment in progress. <laughs> in motion. Luther went on to say, this command affects those who appear to be morally upright, those who go to church, those who are preachers and teachers of the word. It affects us all. Longing for the material possessions of another is coveting. Yearning for the respect of another. Yearning for the reputation of another is coveting. Yearning for the fame of another. People in our day go into deep debt, accumulate great debt, attempting to keep up with the households of their neighbors. Coveting. Longing for a relationship with someone else's spouse is coveting, among other things, <laughs> or husband of another. So God, we see, is intimately concerned with the cares of our heart, with the matters of coveting. In, in Romans 7, Paul, what did Paul say? I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It exposes, man, man, our heart and our desperate need for Christ. What is the law, beloved? Schoolmaster drives us to Christ. Guilty. In the sheer penetrating power of this command called the Pharisee of Pharisees out into the light. And it's, it's, it's very significant that Paul singles out this command from all the others speaking about the exposure to the power of sin and heart's tendency to be given to um, idolatry. Paul says, it was the law of God that taught me that I was a sinner. It taught me about the sinfulness of sin. And that's why he's such a proponent for the grace of God. Justification by faith alone, as we've seen in Romans. And Paul, in his day, like so many other religious hypocrites in his day, thought in external terms with regard to the law of God, with regard to righteousness. It was all an outward, pietistic attempt to look a particular way. But when you come to this command, it shows the inwardness of sin. It's all here, inside our being, inside our mind. It's really right here. This is where it's at. It's in your head, it's in our minds, it's the way we think, it's in our desires, it's in our actions, it's in our intentions and motivations. 
It was this sin that taught Paul that his righteousness was nothing but what? Filthy rags, dung, rubbish. Rubbish. It's in the Bible. Philippians 3.8. It was this commandment that exposed the fact that he was a condemned sinner. Covetousness. It was this commandment that, that taught him the law couldn't save him. He's indicted, he's guilty, he stands naked, he stands bare before the creator of the universe. He sees right to the heart. Now, in our day, consumerism, especially in our society, it's a threat to our souls. Amen? It's a threat to our families, it's a threat to the church, and this is a heresy of the day. Covetousness is promoted in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That's all it is. It's a promotion of covetousness. You name it, and you claim it. This is a heresy that is dangerous as any other heresy. And some Christians are so consumed by mass consumerism, they don't give to their church. They don't. Some of them can't. They're consumed. We live in a day where in, in culture praises and worships covetousness. It's, it's just this massive, nasty, tangled web. And it's so easy, man, to fall prey to it. Amen? It's easy. But this is the true battleground of a broken world. And the true battle, battleground of a broken world is internal. It's internal. And only Holy Spirit can transform the human heart to bring about any lasting change. Amen? We're all recipients of that. Praise God. This is a command that makes men and women aware of their sin. Their need for pardon. Their need for forgiveness. Their need for the redeeming power and the grace of God. This 10th commandment teaches us more about God. That is that he knows our thoughts. He knows the man. What, what, what 1 Samuel sixteen seven? The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks... Outwardly, you can say and act any way you want, and man will go, oh. But you don't know their heart. God does. So as we think through this, possessions, beloved, are are not wrong in themselves. Do we know this? Okay? Now, we saw in the seventh commandment, you know, the commandment not to steal. We see there that we have personal rights to personal property. It's a privilege we have. We, we own and we use material things in order to sustain life and health here where we dwell. But this commandment here, this, this is confronting us at a point where we come to believe in abundance, trust in possessions. It's a big difference. Jesus said this, Luke 12. He said to them, take care And be on guard against all covetousness. Did you notice? That's the words of Christ. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he goes on in that parable. Remember, he says there's there's, there's this wealthy man. And this wealthy man says in verse 19, Luke 12, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up. For many years, relax, 
eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you what? You fool. This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's heavy. Are desires evil in and of themselves? No. Of course not. I mean, there's things we all desire, right? Desiring and coveting something is much different. Nothing wrong with desiring, you know, more room in your house, a bigger house. It's, it's, there's a fine line, maybe, between desire and covetousness. But God says, you shall not covet. If he was saying you shall not desire, then, man, we'd be in a whole lot of trouble. But here, desire is not being forbidden, you know, in the theoretical What's being for, forbidden again is coveting. I mean, it just it begins to consume you. You become jealous and envious when someone else raises up. You want to tear them down because you want what they want. That's what envy does. So this again is set in the context of desiring, passionately desiring that which your neighbor has. As a matter of that which God has given your neighbor. That which God has enabled your neighbor to have. That's not given to you. So again, it's repeated over and over again. You shall not covet your neighbors, your neighbors, your neighbors, wife, servants, household, etc. So it's, this is not a generic, abstract command not to desire. You know, Paul said of desire, you know what he said? Philippians 1. Yet which, which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Between staying here and ministering to you and going to be with the Lord. Right? My desire is to depart. That's what Paul said. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that's far better. It's far better than being here and ministering to you. but it was more profitable for them that he remained. Amen? So the desire in mind here with coveting are desires that are, here it is, ungoverned desires. Ungoverned desires. And coveting means to yearn for something with the view of possessing it. Hungering, hankering. It's this inordinate desire kindled in the eyes of the mind which either envy or, or even here it is, begrudges what God has provided for you. Begrudges what God has provided for you. Wanting the things that our neighbor has. So this goes deep, doesn't it? To the unseen thoughts, motives, desires although desire is not wrong in and of itself. You can have a goal. We can have goals to purchase property that's larger than the property we have if we're blessed to own property. You can have goals to to own a bigger, nicer house, but there's nothing wrong with that desire. But coveting, again, is, is what's in mind here. What did Jesus say? When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, 
So here we see this old covenant principle, this old covenant law. We see the principle of covetousness throughout all of Scripture. And we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in chapter 6 and verse 20, Store up yourselves treasure where, beloved? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Because everything on this earth is subject either to destruction, decay, or theft. Ultimately, man, coming outside of your house knowing you've been ripped off. Didn't I say in the lesson on stealing who came out, someone ripped my son's old car, ripped the stereo out of it. He worked hard to put all this money in it. Just cut the wires, just ripped it right out of there. Pulled up to his car, parked in front of the house, and just decided they wanted a couple molding strips off the car, so they popped them right off. You just feel violated, you know? But there it is, subject to theft. So you can worship your molding on your car. (laughs) Or your stereo or whatever. And it can be gone tomorrow. So Jesus here is counseling us to make the joys and the blessings of our lives of the the eternal world is a priority over the temporal. That's what he says in Matthew 6. So the point of the the image here of treasure is that it's a waste of life to live for these things that have no spiritual or eternal impact, no importance spiritually, no significance. It's kind of hard to do. They don't mean anything. They're temporal, they're fleeting, they're passing. That's the Lord's point. That's his point on the Sermon on the Mount. Because we of all people, we've been eternally awakened. We've been given life. We've been given the spirit. We've been blessed with how many spiritual blessings, beloved? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours the moment we're born again. Every single one. So the implication is twofold with the teachings of Jesus. Number one, some of God's people do live this way, treasuring things on earth. They're still God's people, but they treasure things on earth. And the majority of their efforts are tied up in things that really don't matter in the long run. They're consumed with them. And the second implication of the Lord is that those things will, in the end, they will disappoint you. So then we have to ask, okay, what are treasures in heaven? Well, a lot of times I think we think that it has to do with future glory, all that we'll receive in future glory, all that we'll see, all that we'll participate in. I think that's only part, part of what Jesus is talking about. That's one of them. That's a big one. But treasures in heaven, it doesn't mean treasures after this life. We notice who Jesus is addressing on the hillside of Galilee to a people not unlike us. So what he essentially means by treasures here is, is, is treasures with God that come from God. Right? All the blessings in the heavenly places. So we have to ask, how thankful are we? How, how much do we treasure our own salvation 
How much do we treasure what we have right here? We're all sitting here together. It's on a Sunday morning. It's, it's 9.33. Okay, we, we have a parking lot we're able to park in, walk into a building, no persecution, like much of the world receives. They can't even get, they don't even have a place like this, let alone try to get to a place like this. Do we treasure that? Do we treasure the fact that, okay, God lives in me. <laughs> the Holy Spirit lives in me. I'm unified with my brothers and sisters. We are the body. Christ is the head. Do we treasure that? That's what I think Jesus means. Speaking of persecution, Jesus addresses, uh, or no, Peter does, I'm sorry. Peter, 1 Peter 1. And he's talking to a church that is being persecuted. Those who are elect, he said, exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he wants to comfort these people, Peter does. So in verses 6 through 9, notice what he says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, know, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with all glory. Do we thank God that we believe? What justifies the sinner? Faith. Belief. In God, the redeeming work of his son, the worth of his son, and his word, according to his word. You believe that, man. We believe that. That's a treasure of heaven. Now. Obtaining, verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you ever wake up or walk throughout the day and say, God, thank you that I'm saved? Thank you that I'm saved. I mean, I mean, I hope we all do. At any given moment of any day, just go, thank you, God, I'm saved. From what? What do we say from? His wrath. We're saved from his wrath by him. That is treasure. That's heavenly treasure. Man, I am not duped. I'm not spun out in my mind with some false ideology. Like most of the people that I hear commentate on TV, the supposed brains of the world. Not, God hasn't chosen many what? Many wise. He's chosen what? People like us. Fools. To confound the wise. That's a heavenly treasure. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. So do we treasure truth? Do we treasure the mystery of the cross? I don't say for my health, don't think that you fully, completely understand justification by faith and never take it for granted. I don't say that for my health, amen? Because that's one of the mysteries of the cross. 
the cross of Jesus Christ, his unconditional love, his grace, his mercy. These are treasures. Christian friends, man. And then yet so many Christians forsake the gathering of one another. What is with that, can I ask? Can I ask that? I do not get that. As I say to the man on Thursday, I I couldn't, like if I weren't in the ministry, I, I don't even know how people survive weekly without going to church for months. For months. I'm not talking about going camping and hanging out with your friends. I'm talking about for months. They're nowhere to be seen. How how do you do that? This is a treasure, man. (laughs) Treasure. This is a privilege. I know this is supposed to be Sunday school and I'm kind of preaching, but seriously. So does not the 10th commandment teach us much about ourselves, beloved? It does me. I've been loving this study. People, you know, they hate the law. And we're going to learn today, if you're a Christian, you love the law. You know why? Because you're not under the law. And if you're under grace, you better love the law. (laughs) So this command is a leveler, a great leveler. Of the playing field. Yeah, the religious pietistic hypocrites can stand up and say, well, we've never, we're monotheistic, we serve one God, we're supernaturalists, we're not naturalists, we're supernaturalists. Yeah, that's good. Never committed this, never committed that, but you are a coveter, like all the rest of us, in desperate need of grace. So everything that we have ever coveted on this earth, according to the parable of Jesus, it will not go with us. We cannot take it with us. All we can do is leave it behind for somebody else to covet. That's it. That's it. So everything we covet will be left behind. That's it. You know, I have this motorcycle. I'll just show you some of the the sanctifying work of God in my life in the past. Ten years ago, I built this motorcycle. I love motorcycles. Always love motorcycles. I love fast, shiny machinery. So as I was building this thing, I was accumulating all the parts over many months. So I had this money set aside. I said, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to get this. I want it to look like this. So I found a frame, and I found the skins, which are the tank and the fenders and all this type of thing. The motor. And I'm telling you, this is 2002. There was a period of like three weeks, four weeks, five weeks where I was consumed with this thing. Losing sleep in my daughter. No, my daughter, what was she then? What is she now? 20? She was 10. And said I was coveting. (laughs) Amen. That's awesome. You're consumed. You're consumed. She didn't say it sassy. She goes, you're consumed with that motorcycle. Man, you're right. So true. I was reminded that last night when I was riding it. (laughs) This is 100 degrees out and nothing feels better than riding in the wind at night. Nothing. Right, brother? (laughs) Preach it, brother. So coveting, it begins in the hearts, in our private thoughts. It's always self-centered. So Christ brings us out of self-centeredness through the gospel. 
enables us to be Christ-centered. So this commandment, above all, teaches us our hope, it's not in us. In other words, hope ain't in here. Right? Hope is outside of us. It's in Christ alone. Because this kind of sin only leads to more unhappiness, discontentment, increases unhappiness. And happiness has to do with happenings, happenstance, what's going on, what you have, what you don't have. But joy is much different. Much different. So Jesus also went on to say, in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these what? things will be added to you. And that, and, and that promise is, is not that I can live in Congressman Paul Ryan's house one day, <laughs> which I still love. It's on St. Lawrence Avenue, Janesville, Wisconsin. Beautiful home. These things have to do with what we need, amen? He will provide the needs of his people. And the law has driven us to Christ. Grace covers us for eternity. So may we, according to the same grace, live contently. Is contently a word? Elizabeth? Contentedly. Contentedly. Not contently. Contentedly. May we live contentedly. By faith in Christ. Amen? And not be covetous. Because it's easy to be. Amen? So aren't you glad you're saved? Not condemned by the law. Freed by grace. Comments, anyone? I just know you're ready to say something, brother. I can see it. You're it? All right. All right, brother. Anybody? All right. Lord God, we, again, we all thank you together and certainly agree with Calvin that our hearts are nothing but idle factories, um, so, easily, so easily given over to uh, that which we see and feel, touch and smell. And uh, oftentimes uh, neglect to focus in on um, the treasures of heaven that we've already been given, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Help us, Lord, according to your grace and the power of your spirit to treasure um, our eternal condition, our eternal position, uh, that we have one another, that we're part of the church, community of saints, that we have the prayers and the counsel and the, the exhortation of one another, that we have the word of God in the form of a book, the Bible that we can open and we can read, and the fact that your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, that we're not condemned nor under the conviction of condemnation whatsoever, totally, completely freed in Christ. May we treasure these things. Help us, Lord, because we're surrounded 
by uh, advertisements and very, very smart people who can easily convince us that we're, we need to be discontented with what we do have, which only spurns on this covetous desire. So help us, Lord, out of this type of thinking by your grace to think on eternal things for your glory and for the benefit of the whole covenant community, the Church of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.